0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
1: Hello, and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to the Korean War episode seven. Last time, we continued our in-depth analysis of Sino-Soviet relations, through the year of 1949, which, as we've come to appreciate, was a critically important year for the building blocks of diplomacy that would, in time, pave the way for the Korean War. We're going to get there eventually, but I hope I'll have your guys' patience. And I have to say, before we go any further, I mentioned a while ago about getting some negative feedback, and I know no one really likes to talk about negative feedback, but I have to say, since I mentioned that, you guys have really stepped up and just been the most supportive appreciative group of history friends I think I've ever ever experienced in my life and I don't know I mean this is me going off script so to speak because the script is in front of me sorry to shatter the illusion for you but yeah I I really I can't express enough how much I appreciate you guys just getting in touch just letting me know how much you're enjoying the Korean War and I mean yes I think I've learned from this experience Covering a war that did not occur more than 300 years ago is definitely a good idea for getting When Diplomacy Fails on the map. We've already welcomed several new members to the When Diplomacy Fails group of history friends. So yeah, it's it's a wonderful time to be a listener to this podcast and it's an even better time to be Zach Twomley because I feel like now When Diplomacy Fails is finally getting out there and it's finally getting the attention that It deserves, well, the history is finally getting the attention it deserves, and in line with that, let's continue what we were doing last time. You see, last time we were looking at Sino-Soviet relations, and this time we are looking at Sino-Soviet relations part three. Part three of four parts, so don't worry if you're wondering if we're going to be doing this forever. We're not. Just this and another episode, and we'll be on our way to look at Sino-American relations, so that should be interesting. Anyway... So Mao's plans had somewhat gone up in smoke. That was kind of where we left things last time. And this is late in October slash early November when his efforts to seize some outlying islands surrounding Taiwan miserably failed. We kind of left the story there from last time. You remember Mao was going to meet up with Stalin and he needed to have some leverage for that meeting. But the failure to take these islands meant that he had a lot less leverage. So his plans for inflicting the final defeat on Chiang Kai-shek's Republican regime would... Be far less clear. And notwithstanding these setbacks, Mao also accepted that time was of the essence. Although he expected Joseph Stalin to drive a hard bargain, since that was Stalin's default setting, driving hard bargains and he did expect that he would probably demand the ceding of Manchuria into the Soviet Union, Mao was determined to find a way to get Soviet aid for the final chapter of the Chinese Civil War. Whatever it took, though of course if the price could be reduced he would go with that option. Let's see how he got on then, as I take you to early November 1949. A huge thanks once again to you all for being so brilliant, and let's continue on with the story. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. I should remind you guys, as I should be reminding you guys every single time, that when diplomacy Fells is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Maybe you're just listening to when diplomacy Fells for the first time, you've no idea what Agora is. The Agora Podcast Network is intended to be the marketplace of the mind. It is the best place on the podcasting interweb to find all sorts of brilliant podcasts with authors that have the same attention to detail and quality like I like to think I do myself. David Crowther's History of England is on there. You might also be interested to know that Aziz's History of Westeros is on there. We did a collab episode with Aziz not too long ago. In fact, it was during the insanity of our Five Weeks to Run Wild project, but do check that out and check out Agora Podcast Network's Facebook group. I know there's a lot of Facebook groups floating around at the moment. It seems like I started a trend or maybe there's something in the water, but do do investigate. If you're looking for podcasts of the same quality, if you're trying to learn something or enjoy yourself when you're listening to podcasts, Agora is intended to be that kind of stamp of quality that lets you know that we care about what we do and we want it to be good, good stuff. So that when you listen to it, you don't turn it off after five minutes being like, Oh, oh well, I guess guess this guy isn't too good after all, you'll know if you see the Agora mark that we are caring about what we do deeply. And we also want you guys to get in touch and let us know what you think about it. And of course, to take part in the discussion. So make sure to do that. Check out the Agora podcast network full stop, but also check out the Agora podcast Facebook group. The link of which will be provided in the description, but if the link doesn't work in any case, make sure to just search Agora podcast group in Facebook. Thanks anyway, guys. The song of the week this week is called My Creole Sue and it's by the Columbia Quartet. It was released in 1909. It's a little bit grainy, you might say, but... I like that aesthetic. I'm sorry if you guys don't really like these songs of the week, but I think it's nice to have something different every week to introduce us to the Korean War. It's certainly a little bit uplifting from the cynicism and realism that Joseph Stalin and the like perpetrated. So here we go. This is My Creole Sue by the Columbia Quartet, released in 1909. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 7 of The Korean War. Zedong had grown used to possessing the advantage over his opponents. It had been some time since the republican Chinese forces had seriously threatened his Chinese Communist Party and he had greatly benefited from the superiority in position, in resources and in manpower once the tables had so drastically turned in the civil war. It was so apparent to Mao that victory was inevitable that he had felt comfortable with declaring the establishment of the People's Republic of China on the 1st of October 1949, before Chiang Kai-shek's forces had even been completely defeated. The outcome of the struggle, while Mao wished to arrive at it sooner, was thus not in doubt. The future looked bright for the once obscure son of a peasant family of moderate means. Mao seemed destined to lead the most populous communist state in the world, and to enjoy trappings of power on an unimaginable scale. As positive as the future seemed, though, Mao could not ignore the immediate strategic realities which faced his new People's Republic. When it came to the question of an American-leaning or Soviet-leaning China, Mao had plainly chosen the latter. He wasn't, after all, heading to Washington in the near future. Yet, as a man used to possessing the advantage, Mao must have burned deep inside at the prospect of arriving on Stalin's doorstep empty-handed. Stalin was, after all, a notoriously hard bargainer, and Mao would have known that Stalin would ask for something in return for his own requests. What Mao wanted was to acquire material aid from the Soviets to facilitate the invasion of Taiwan and to finish off the Republicans, thereby securing his regime from either Chiang's resurgence or American interference. Yet what he also wanted to achieve in his trip to Moscow was to make genuine headway in the negotiations once arranged between a disadvantaged Republican China and an empowered Soviet Union. To do so, Mao planned to do away with the Treaty of Friendship, agreed to in August 1945 This agreement had handed Stalin a brilliant set of cards in Mongolia and Manchuria and it had represented in Mao's mind a repeat of the unequal treaties between China and the West which had so characterized the 19th and early 20th centuries of Chinese relations with the rest of the world If Mao wanted to pave a new future for China he understood that he would have to overcome the prejudices and expectations of the Chinese past To do so, any semblance of the unequal treaties of yore would have to be abolished. But Mao was acutely aware that while he weighed both of these aims against the other, Stalin was unlikely to give either of them without a significant price. The Soviet chairman may well insist on paying for one by giving up on the other, a prospect which Mao was immensely uncomfortable with. The question for Mao and his allies before he left for Moscow then was how to achieve the maximum results in the constrained situation they found themselves in. First and foremost, Mao believed, damage control would have to be implemented. After the Chinese Politburo met in the days immediately following the failure to seize the Taiwanese islands, an effort was made to alleviate any pressure on Mao or his peers to acquire any lofty promises from Stalin. As if in anticipation of Stalin's efforts to drive a hard bargain and the potential failure which could result from this, Mao wanted to reduce any pressures which the public mood in China or elsewhere might place upon him. How was he going to do this, though? Well, as a first step, he was determined to recast his visit to Moscow, not as one which would bring the People's Republic of China any advantages, but simply as a Sino-Soviet goodwill tour, brought on by the occasion of Stalin's birthday. How nice. Mao also had a further strategy to prevent any loss of face during his trip. His foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, would stay at home while Mao travelled to Moscow and would only travel to Moscow himself if it seemed as though Stalin was about to give way on certain notable issues. On the other hand, if Stalin looked set to demand a high price, too high a price, or if Mao found Stalin's terms unacceptable, then Chao lai would remain at home. Through such a process, there would be no prospect of Mao and company returning to China having publicly failed in their mission to the Soviet Union. Mao would be there as the public face of the mission for sure, but he would hold back from engaging in actual negotiations over the minutiae of Sino-Soviet cooperation, since that was what farm ministers were for. By testing the waters first, Mao hoped to avoid any disappointment, and to demonstrate to Stalin that he would only engage in serious talks. Otherwise, Mao could simply explain, there was no point in his minister coming all the way from China to engage in fruitless talks. This, at least, was the plan, but time would tell if it would work or not. On the 6th of December 1949, as well prepared as he would ever be, Mao departed for Moscow by train, stopping off on an unplanned visit in Manchuria along the way. Manchuria remained a sensitive issue in Mao's mind. It was strategically located in a critically important position in China's sphere of territory – But the definition of Manchuria itself, and the lands which that region could be said to include, were necessarily vague. If it came down to it, Mao did not doubt that Stalin would seek to claim as much land under the Manchurian jurisdiction as possible, since this would give Moscow the greatest strategic advantages. This was another reason why Mao didn't wish to see the Manchurian weapon in Stalin's hands to begin with. Aside from the insult this laid at the feet of the communist nationalist Within Mao Zedong, the procedure for occupying and enforcing the Soviet writ in the region could have grave consequences depending how far Stalin intended to force the issue. Mao didn't want to take the chance that Stalin would be reasonable and believed instead that the Soviet chairman would take as much as the circumstances, in other words, Chinese weaknesses, allowed. Considering the lessons learned by the West by this point, Mao's deductions were far from unfounded. In his stop-off in the Manchurian city of Cheyang, Mao wasn't merely reminiscing about what might have been. He was also keeping a close eye on his so-called allies. Gao Gang, that Manchurian native we were introduced to in the last episode, had already fallen from favour in Mao's mind for his demonstrated desire to bring Manchuria into the Soviet fold. In light of these ambitions, Mao had set Gao Gang a test to see if he would in fact redeem himself and the People's Republic, or whether he was in fact doomed. What was Gang's test? Well, Mao had instructed the Manchurian native to remove all pictures and images of Stalin from the city, and to ensure that only portraits of Mao remained in place. In the portrait war of the age, the appearance of the chairman's face could suggest reverence, allegiance and loyalty, and there was plainly no room for such a contested region as Manchuria to be in any doubts. Its people had to be shown that China owned this land, not the Soviet Union, and so all images of Stalin needed to be gone. Unfortunately, while Gao Gang certainly received this memo, Mao was outraged to discover that he had manifestly failed in this task. Perhaps not expecting Mao to get out of the train and explore the city in anticipation of its expected absorption into the Soviet fold, Gao had neglected to remove Stalin's portraits from the city. When Mao travelled through the city of Cheyang then, he was greeted with an infuriating sight, portraits of himself being consistently dwarfed by the far larger and more resplendent images of Joseph Stalin. Some portraits of Stalin had rings of flowers around them, while Mao's picture lingered unloved on the walls and sideboards of the city, as though they'd only been put up there for the sake of it, and not out of any sense of genuine affection. This did not bode well for the trip to come, and Mao rightly suspected that many in his own party, like Gao Gang, were more sympathetic to Stalin than to their own Chinese leader, who was, after all, the true leader of them all. It would evidently be quite difficult to expel Soviet influence from Manchuria, but Mao was determined to see that progress was made, and he arrived in Moscow on the 16th of December, 1949. By this point, in terms of the grand strategic makeup of the Chinese Civil War, Chiang Kai-shek and his Republican allies had retreated to the island of Taiwan. With them, they brought their remaining soldiers, the bureaucratic functionaries and institutions, and of course their war chest, which was still bolstered by American monies. Chiang's exit to Taiwan and the abandonment of the Chinese mainland on the 10th of December was not the triumphant man's mind that it seemed. All it did was make it all the more imperative that Taiwan be seized. Where before that island had been a bastion of republican sentiment and a strategically critical landing pad, now it was the base of operations for Mao's political enemies, and so long as the ocean separated Chiang and Mao, the latter could never feel completely safe in his position, nor could he be so sure, as his latter arguably paranoid behaviour was to demonstrate, that the Americans did not intend to intervene at this critical juncture in Chiang Kai-shek's name. The best way to prevent any extension of the civil war, and to conclude it absolutely, was to finish Chang off, and to do that, Mao knew he would need the Soviet Union's help. If the Republican retreat made Mao's urgency more acute, he could not afford to show it, though. Stalin would already know of his counterpart's weak position, and there was no need to advertise, even further, the chasm of power between them. Initially, the cold weather meant that Mao didn't meet with Stalin immediately after arriving in Moscow on the 16th of December, but later on in the evening the two men met in person at last, accompanied by the necessary interpreters, and the sheer weight of expectation which no doubt filled the room. Attempting to put Stalin on the defensive from the get-go, Mao began with a brief summary of the difficulties which Soviet policy had caused him up to that point, paying particular attention to the early Soviet efforts to bring about some sort of mediated peace which would perpetuate a divided China. If he was taken aback, the experienced Stalin did not show it, instead accepting, at least in a cryptic way, a measure of responsibility. We have probably caused you a lot of trouble. Beg your pardon, he said. In response to this weakly worded apology, Mao noted that, I have been squeezed and attacked within the party in China a veiled reference to the activity of Stalinist operatives within the Chinese Communist Party, such as the aforementioned native Manchurian Gao Gang. Let bygones be bygones, Stalin returned. Who can condemn victors? Noting a measure of awkwardness in the mood, Stalin then attempted to change the subject, asking Mao about the nature of his trip, though he knew the nature of it quite well. For this trip, Mao replied, we hope to bring home something that not only looks nice, but also tastes delicious. Mao was not talking about a slice of Stalin's birthday cake, but of a slice, as big as he could get, of the Manchurian pie. Yet even after this metaphor was repeated to Stalin by the interpreter, Stalin refused to take the bait, so Mao tried a different approach. He asked Stalin point-blank if he wished to call and Lai to Moscow to join them. This question sounds like an odd one, but... It was essentially a question of whether, deep down, Stalin actually intended to conduct a meaningful discussion over the future of Manchuria, though it could of course be presented to the onlooker as one of a mere diplomatic courtesy. Mao continued to test the waters in Moscow, and he did seem capable of at least sharing the same room as a man who had once leveraged his position against the Anglo-American post-war vision to build what became the Soviet bloc. Mao was of course well aware of Stalin's record, and of his ability to say no or say yes while mouthing the opposite, making you feel as though you'd gotten what you wanted until you went home and then you realised it was too late. If we cannot make certain what we really want to work out, then what is the use to call Chow to come here? Stalin asked. Understanding that the Soviet leader was now calling his bluff, Mao realised that he wasn't going to get an offer from Stalin at this moment to renegotiate the 1945 treaty, so he tried another approach. Noting the need for peace in his country's case, Mao insisted that the People's Republic desperately needed international peace so that it could properly recover its old energies, and Mao asked Stalin, How long will international peace be preserved? To which Stalin replied, We have already had peace for the last four years. Stalin attempted to further understate the cost of Mao's struggle, by emphasising the lack of threats to Mao's current position. There is no one to fight with in China, Stalin noted, not unless Kim Il-sung decides to invade China. However Stalin expected Mao to respond to the mention of the North Korean leader, Stalin continued with his theme of relative Chinese prosperity by insisting on the basis for which such peaceful terms could continue. Peace, as Stalin insisted, Will depend on your efforts. If we continue to be friendly, peace can last not only 5 to 10 years, but 20 to 25 years and perhaps even longer. Stalin's optimistic note contained two major nuggets. While not going so far as to make a collective noun out of their friendship and refer to Mao and himself as belonging to the same communist family, Stalin's use of our and we was deliberate it inferred a certain onus to preserve peace at Mao's door, and served also to indicate that Stalin was not anticipating that Mao would engage in any reckless foreign ventures. The second nugget we can take from Stalin's line, though, was the equality that the Soviet chairman implied. Again, by the use of our and we, Stalin indicated that they were equally responsible, equally joint in foreign policy, and united in their ambitions to preserve peace in their respective spheres. Stalin was disinterested in war in Europe, so Mao should be disinterested in war in Asia. Yet as a final point, implying such equality would also enable Mao to return to the question of the distinctly unequal treaties, as Stalin well expected, and so the tricky language of diplomacy, which Stalin was evidently fluent in, was revealed to contain more layers than was initially obvious. Mao, to his credit, seemed equally fluent, as he knew he would have to be when meeting such a formidable man in Stalin. It was important in Stalin's mind that Mao be seen to ask for things, as being in the position to hand out concessions indicated that you were in the dominant position. The psychological impact which requesting such concessions could have on a foreign dignitary would vary depending on how much they had to ask for and how long they had to ask for it. Stalin didn't intend to merely exhaust Mao's patience though, and he remarked that they could discuss the question of the 1945 treaty when Mao brought it up. The way in which Mao brought up the treaty demonstrated Mao's own adherence to the diplomatic code. Rather than ask that the treaty be renegotiated, Mao simply referred to the previous Liu Shaoqi mission, not Liu Shaoqi mission as I called him in the last episode, sorry about that, but Mao referred to the previous Liu Shaoqi mission earlier in the year, stating that Since Liu Shaoqi's return to China, the Chinese Communist Party has been discussing the Treaty of Friendship, Alliance and Mutual Assistance with the USSR. This careful diplomatic tiptoeing around making any distinct commitments or requests strikes me as language more familiar to lawyers than national leaders, but in the minds of both men it was imperative that such a policy be adopted if their reputations and self-image were to be preserved. Both men, of course, held onto their leadership positions thanks to an unrivalled cult of power which surrounded them, and any supplication to a foreign counterpart could throw this cult into immediate jeopardy. Incredibly, what Stalin used to follow this was a display of diplomatic athletics which nearly left Mao speechless, arguing that since the terms of the current arrangement between China and the USSR were also guaranteed by the United States and the British, Stalin reasoned that if the Treaty of 1945 was simply dropped, the British and Americans would rush to take advantage and claim portions of territory which they were in a position to occupy. Since any public rejection of the Treaty's terms would thus violate the Treaty, Stalin instead argued that Mao should take advantage of a kind of gentleman's agreement, which he presented in the following terms, using Port Arthur as an example, saying that we could formally maintain the Soviet Union's right to station its troops at Port Arthur while at the request of the Chinese government, actually withdraw the troops currently stationed there. If, on the other hand, the Chinese comrades are not satisfied with this strategy, they can present their own proposals. Stalin's efforts to deceive Mao verged on breathtaking. Not only did he wish to hold on to the unequal 1945 treaty in all but name, he also wished to blame its retention on the Anglo-Americans and he reasoned that unwritten handshake agreements would be sufficient to ease Mao's concerns and convince him that the 1945 treaty didn't have to be as limiting as it actually was, or as it remained on paper. Either way, such a dilemma was not his fault, Stalin explained, but merely the result of the Yalta Conference, which the USSR was contractually obliged to adhere to upon pain of Anglo-American interference. Stalin wanted to have his cake and eat it, and for a moment it seemed as though he would get away with this scam. Mao had not given any thought to the use of Yalta as an excuse, and as Stalin was well aware, Mao was also suspicious of the American government's intentions with respect to Chiang Kai-shek's republican regime. Now that they were holed up in Taiwan in the desperate hour when their strategic interests were at stake, the Americans would surely be looking for any excuse to interrupt the progress of the People's Liberation Army and save the republican regime. By violating the 1945 Treaty, thus violating Yalta, the Americans, supported by their British lackeys, would be given such an excuse. In discussing the Treaty in China, we had not taken into account the American and English positions regarding the Yalta Agreement, May began, before adding, We must act in a way that is best for the common cause. This question merits further consideration. However, it is already becoming clear that the Treaty should not be modified at the present time nor should one rush to withdraw troops from Port Arthur. Mao appeared to be buying into the warped presentation of events, and into Stalin's habitual tendency to blame the West for his own intransigence. Whether he thought he could get away with pulling the wool over Mao's eyes or not, Stalin was resolute when it came to a possible foil in his plan. Mao asked again whether it would be wise to invite Chow en Lai the foreign minister, over to Moscow to join them. Mao wanted his foreign minister to come, not to renegotiate the treaty with Stalin, but to determine how to respond. Che's experience in foreign affairs would be invaluable to Mao, who was plainly caught between a suspicion of the West and his distrust of the Soviets. As Stalin well knew, his offer was a flimsy, weakly argued one, and to another Chinese official less suspicious of Western intentions, and better informed of other treaties such as Yalta for example, it would likely fall to pieces. For this reason... Stalin sought to keep Chow and Lai away. Was there any truth to Stalin's presentation of events at all, though? To recap, Stalin argued that he wouldn't be able to cancel the 1945 treaty since this was locked into the Yalta Conference, and violating the 1945 treaty would thus violate Yalta and provide grounds for the Anglo Americans to consider the whole arrangement void. If this happened, Stalin was claiming that Washington and London would lay claim to some sensitive territories in the Chinese sphere of influence, in particular the Kuril Islands and South Sakhalin, which were located to the north of Japan and maintain a Russian presence to this day. Through Stalin's presentation of events, the Anglo-Americans would come and occupy these sensitive territories if Yalta was dissolved, placing them in an ideal position to then strike at the People's Republic of China with regards to the question, was Stalin telling Mao the truth, the answer was a resounding no. Richard C. Thornton's aforementioned book, a book we've mentioned many times in this series called Odd Man Out, Stalin, and Mao and the Origins of the Korean War, has helped us immensely for the sake of events like these. Thornton's accessible and straightforward writing style, not to mention his mounds of research, has made examining and presenting to you this preceding part of the Korean War, far easier than it would have been otherwise. I would absolutely recommend that you check out Thornton's book. In any case, Thornton effectively captures all the hypocrisy and deceit present in Stalin's portrayal of events to Mao when he writes that the falsity of this argument was clear enough. The 1945 treaty derived from Yalta but the treaty had nothing to do legally or otherwise with the Soviet position in the Kuril Islands or South Sakhalin. Neither one is mentioned in the 1945 treaty, though both are mentioned in the Yalta Agreement. The 1945 treaty, in fact, stood on its own merits. Stalin had muddled together two separate entities, which he no doubt knew that Chow would recognise. Therefore, the Soviet leader strove to keep Chow and Lai in China. Did Stalin think he could bulldoze Mao into accepting the Soviet position on the 1945 treaty on the grounds that Mao might not have seen the alter Agreement? Indeed, strange as this may sound, Stalin seems to think that confusing Mao would have been his best chance to get what he wanted at the lowest price. But Mao determined then to change the subject for the moment, and he proceeded with the meeting by raising the issue of Soviet aid to China to which Stalin approved a $5 billion line of credit. Stalin agreed to render assistance in helping the Chinese establish air transportation routes, to train naval personnel, and to provide the Chinese with a naval force. Back to the second matter at hand, which Mao hoped would be met with more success, the issue of Taiwan was tentatively raised. Our lack of naval forces and aviation makes the occupation of the island by the People's Liberation Army more difficult, Mao said and he continued to indirectly make a request for aid. With regard to this, some of our generals have been voicing opinions that we should request some assistance from the Soviet Union, which could send volunteer pilots or secret military detachments to speed up the conquest of Taiwan. Yet Stalin didn't believe it was in his interests to relieve the pressure of the Republican regime on Mao, and he presented his own intransigence as ever as a necessary precaution in the Face of Western opposition. What is most important here, Stalin said, is not to give the Americans a pretext to intervene. Grant's strategy was all well and good, but Mao then managed to let slip that the People's Liberation Army possessed only one landing assault unit, confirming what Stalin had already been told. Stalin appreciated that there was now no chance of Mao being able to finish off Chiang Kai shek's regime since Mao possessed no landing craft, planes or suitably trained soldiers to carry such an operation out. Mao was thus dependent upon Stalin for the conclusion of the Communist Revolution, and Stalin knew it. For as long as he could, Stalin was determined to make this dependence a source of Chinese weakness, and he ensured that it remained supplicant to Moscow and deferred to his own direction in world Communist affairs. What was perhaps worse for Mao in these negotiations was the fact that once Stalin discerned the extent of the Chinese reliance upon his decisions, he felt content to toy with Mao for the remainder of their meeting on the 16th of December. Stalin continued the meeting by proposing a deliberately ludicrous plan, suggesting that one could select a company of fighting forces, train them in propaganda, send them to Taiwan and through them organise an uprising on the island. Rejecting such a proposal as absurd, Mao changed the subject by noting that, Our troops have approached the borders of Burma and Indochina. As a result, the Americans and British are alarmed, not knowing whether we will cross the border or whether our troops will halt their movement. Stalin fired back by Prodigant Mao's sensibilities, saying, One could create a rumor that you were preparing to cross the border and in this way frighten the imperialists a bit. In response to this, Mao changed his tune again by introducing a subject which he was confident would harden Stalin's mood. Several countries, Mao began, especially Britain, are actively campaigning to recognise the People's Republic of China. However, we believe that we should not rush to be recognised. We must first bring about order to the country, strengthen our position and then we can talk to foreign imperialists. But Stalin refused to be phased, perhaps safe in the knowledge that he had Mao where he wanted him, and was enjoying watching the Chinese leader squirm. Stalin fired back an equally bluff-filled response, saying, That is a good policy, but if you need to put pressure on the British, this can be done by resorting to a conflict between the Guangdong province and Hong Kong, and to resolve this conflict, Mao Zedong should come forward as mediator. Mao Zedong was not amused. Stalin was neither taking him seriously, nor seemed to care much for China's best interests. But Stalin was not finished. He proceeded to pepper Mao with questions. Did China have any foreign banks? Did these include Japanese banks? Who was in control of customs? Do you have any inspectors overseeing foreign industries? Who owns the mining and petroleum industries? Was it possible to grow rubber trees in China? Do you want us to translate your revolutionary works into Russian? In such a way did Stalin declare the meeting at an end, having received the terse one-word responses from a Chinese leader, now exhausted with the prospect of further negotiations. Mao needed his foreign minister at his side the next time such negotiations took place, if indeed there was to be a next time. Two days later, Mao would send the details of the meeting home to his peers, but the immediate aftermath of his talks with Stalin must have felt more like an overwhelming showdown than a meeting between equals. Stalin had evidently come far more prepared to push and take advantage of Mao than the Chinese leader had expected, and he keenly felt his own lack of knowledge, in relation to the Yalta Agreement in particular, as much as he likely felt frustrated at his letting slip of the PLA's general unpreparedness to finish off the Republicans. Mao had made several errors then when he was faced with Stalin's formidable image of well-informed self-assurance, but he would over the following days, hatch a plan to rally his allies around him and fight back. The diplomatic struggle between the two ideological allies was far from over. And next time we'll resume this fascinating story. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the seventh episode of The Korean War. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon.